Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Got a really interesting episode for you today. Uh, listeners have probably heard the acronym R3. And some folks know intimately what the acronym R3 means, but I'm certain there's an awful lot of others that have heard the term, um, but really don't know necessarily what it means. Today on On the Wing, we're going to break down what R3 means, what led to the R3 concept, uh, and ways the hunting community is executing R3. I should probably explain what the heck R3 is, right? Recruit, retain, and reactivate hunters. Um, so we're going to talk about why that's so darn important. And we're going to close with a conversation about how you, the listener, supporters of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, the upland bird hunting and conservation community can get involved in recruiting, retaining, and reactivating hunters for the good of our wildlife habitat conservation mission. And we're, we're diving deep into this topic on this week uh, as we lead up to National Hunting and Fishing Day, which we will celebrate on Saturday, September 26th. Um, all this week, uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever will be dedicating our digital content to mentoring uh, the, the next generation of hunters into the uplands. And it's being brought to you by our brand new national sponsor, uh, the Hunter Mentor Pledge Partner of Alps Outdoors. Uh, we are really thankful to have Alps on board. A, a great company, sells outdoor products, and is really committed to the big picture of uh, ushering in the next generation of hunters into the conservation world. Um, and we invite folks to take the pledge, and we'll talk a little bit more about what this pledge is, but take the Hunter Mentor Pledge at pheasantsforever.org slash mentor pledge or quailforever.org slash mentor pledge. You can check out those websites if you're listening to this particular episode on your laptop, um, and you can learn a little more as we go by here. But uh, this particular episode is being brought to you by Alps Outdoors. Our experts on R3, we're going to break down all the th three R's. And joining me today, we have Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's Hunting Heritage Program Manager, coming at you from Nebraska, Colby Kerber. Welcome to On the Wing Podcast, Colby. Thanks, Bob. I'm glad to be here. And uh, we'll have you introduce yourself uh, a, a little deeper in a moment. Our featured guest for this episode is, is the gentleman who put the term R3 on my brain map, if, uh, if I could use that term, is uh, Matt Dunphy of the Wildlife Management Institute. He's the director of special programs, and he has a wealth of knowledge about mentoring and kind of the future of hunting. He's been doing this for better part of a decade, uh, research related to, to hunters, mentors, and R3. Um, welcome to On the Wing, Matt. Thanks, Bob. I'm glad to be here. 
All right, Colby, uh, this is your inaugural uh, Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever podcast. Introduce yourself to our audience. Tell us a little bit about your background, uh, your career path, and um, uh, what you do as the hunting heritage and program manager. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, Bob, I'm coming from central Nebraska. I am a born and raised Nebraska Husker. I uh, actually grew up on a farm in northeast Nebraska uh, where I grew a appreciation for the outdoors and for the wildlife and for being around uh, plants and mother nature and just experiencing all of it. The one thing that was missing, though, is I'm a first generation hunter. I did not have any hunting, fishing, camping, uh, any outdoor recreational activities in my family. Um, so all of that's been been self-taught and it really ties into the reason why I'm here today and why I'm so passionate about what I do currently with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever as the Hunting Heritage Program Manager, just trying to find ways to introduce others uh, that like myself maybe did not have that traditional upbringing with uh, firearms and bird dogs and all the great things that uh, we get to experience. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have that growing up. Um, but I've been with Pheasants Forever for about uh, going on 11 years now um, coming up. So it's uh, been a long career here. I started out as a Farmville wildlife biologist, did that for a few years, and then uh, transitioned over to a, a regional representative where I spent my time working with our awesome uh, volunteers out here in Nebraska, helped do the fundraising and uh, work with the volunteers. It's uh, the bread and butter of our organization. And then uh, took over as the Hunting Heritage Program on the national scale about a year ago. So uh, now with chapters and partners and state agencies and work on R3, as you mentioned, and all of our various initiatives and programs to get more individuals outdoors. You talked about being a, a first generation hunter. What was the um, proverbial trigger that uh, made you want to become a hunter? I always had a, uh, a desire um, to try it, but I didn't know really where to begin. So um, I dabbled around you know, on the farm, uh, got my first, when I finally talked my dad into uh, buying me a 22 and you know shot a little bit in the back trees and things like that, but I really didn't, didn't know where or how to go from there. Um, got busy in, in high school and college doing uh, different things in sports and activities. Uh, when I went to the university for my wildlife degree, uh, a couple of my buddies who were uh, in fisheries and wildlife with me, they were big duck hunters and uh, they would go out every morning. They would go to a public wildlife area and they would waterfowl hunt and they begged me to go and they begged me to go. And it was just no, no, no. You know, who wants to get up at 430 in the morning, and go duck hunting? It doesn't even sound fun. And finally, one day I said yes. And uh, that simple decision that they asked me to go and I finally said yes and went along. Um, I still have that ingrained into my brain today. I remember walking out in the muddy water uh, in the morning with my headlamp on, couldn't see where I was going, had no idea what I was getting into, setting up the decoys. And when the sun rose over those duck decoys and I heard the whistling wings come from behind me and that first shot rang off in the morning and you could smell that powder, uh it was it was all over for me from there um hmm. by my senior year of college that was my sophomore year by my senior year 
I actually adjusted my entire schedule around to make sure that uh, me and my friends could go duck hunting every day before college. Uh, we'd roll into our class, take our waders off, and uh, away we'd go. So uh, it's uh, it's it changed my life forever, that's for sure. So I have the advantage through uh, our podcasting app to be able to, to watch you guys as I record. And as you're telling the story of the sun rising over the marsh and the whistling wing, wings coming over your head, I see um, Matt grinning uh, on the screen in front of me. And, and I know Matt, uh, he mentioned before we hit record that he's, he's getting ready to release a book on mentoring. I suspect, Matt, that you've heard a story um, much like that a few times before as you talk to, to people that have gotten hooked on hunting at a later point in their life, haven't you? Oh, yeah, you bet I have. And <clears throat> I wish I was smart enough to write a book. Uh, unfortunately, it'll, it'll just be a, a bitter right, research. I'm sorry, you study. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, went, I went from, you did say that. You were, you were writing a research paper, and I took it to a book. So you should, I'll take you that. should I mean, write absolutely. that book out there. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. No, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, um, I'm a recovering academic egghead, and unfortunately, <laughs> I can't really get my head wrapped around an issue until I research it and dissect it and look at its individual parts for a while. And that's that's kind of a weird thing to do with something like mentoring, at least as we all are talking about it, and and Colby, as as you mentioned it, because um, while there are researchable things about that, much of that, the reasons for doing it and the reasons it works are intangible and really hard to define. And yeah, for me, I've I've gone down that rabbit hole so much personally that, that I don't even describe myself as mentoring somebody now. I, I, I like to uh, think of it as I use other people as my method of take. And I've been doing that for several years now because, man, when I take a new person out and I get to see the experience um, through their eyes and I get to be a part of that, I don't know. There's times I feel more engaged doing that than when I have the gun myself. So it's mm -hmm. something I'm passionate about. But also in this context of R3, I think it's something we need to really think about what the magic sauce in that is. And is that something that we could... I want, to, I want to say programmatically scale. And that's really the question I'm interested in is those unique stories like Colby just told and the, and the ones that I could, I could tell you, and I'm sure Bob, you have, is that something that we as members of the Orange Army, is that something that we can mobilize within ourselves? Is that something that an organization like Pheasants Forever could expand uh, over states through their chapters? Is there a way we can take it out of the social construct, I'm, I'm going to try not to use too many eggheady words here, but can we take it out of that social construct where there's mutual trust, where it's people who have kind of a social code, can we take it out of that and throw two strangers together and make that work at scale? That fascinates me. And, and honestly, even after researching it for two years, I don't really know. <laughs> we know more than we did, but there's some real challenges when you take it outside of that. I'm going to ask you, a person I know, mm -hmm. to come out with me. Yeah, it is fascinating. So, so I want to go down all these roads. Um, I leaped ahead. Uh, why don't we have you introduce yourself to the audience? Because I tease the fact that when I think of R three, I think of Matt Dumphy's face. Because I, I, I'm, I can't place the exact year, but I believe it was at Estes Park 
Was it at Estes Park where you came and talked? Or was it at Custer State Park where you, you I think came it was Custer. To, I think it was Custer okay, was Cust the first time. You came and talked to all Pheasants Forever employees. Every two years, we get all of our employees together for kind of a, a, a five-day session of learning from each other and from experts. And you came to, to Custer State Park and talked to our 400-plus employees about the R3 movement. And, and Howard... It always talks about the the graphs that um, of hunter kind of the decline of hunters over the course of the twenty year period, beginning I think it's in in um, starting in twenty ten. Is that when the graph starts? Well, th that's where one data set starts, but the declining trend goes back to the eighties. Okay, well I remember this graph that that motions like a wave. Mm -hmm. And starts to decline. And, and Howard, President and CEO of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, always talks about, I'm one of those guys crashing on the beach. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and if you haven't seen the graph, you're like, Howard, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but but that, that uh, illustration was so powerful to me, to Howard, to so many about the need for something to be done about the decline of hunters. So I'm, I'm sort of cutting right to the, the crux of the plot, but let uh, why don't you introduce yourself, your background. You've introduced yourself as an egghead. Tell us where you, <laughs> you grew up, where you went to school, and a little bit of your career trajectory. Sure. Well, we, we can make that story simple because I'm a fairly, fairly simple guy. Um, yeah, but before I was an egghead, I was more of a normal person. Um, I grew <laughs> up more in the traditional family. Actually, maybe it's not quite so traditional. Um, I was in a, let's say, very natural resource focused family. So when it comes to who the standard hunter is these days, I think I probably fit the mold really well. My dad worked for the Forest Service. I grew up on Forest Service compounds. The National Forest was my backyard. I was the only boy in a family full of girls, so you can imagine me and my dog spent a lot of time alone in that national forest. And uh, I think that just naturally evolved into a desire to ask formal questions about nature, and that played into kind of the way my brain works. So I got a degree in wildlife, actually it's fish, wildlife, and conservation biology at Carter State University. Did some uh, weird time as a um, polymer chemist. We don't need to go into that dark, sordid history, but basically it was still it was still focused toward wildlife. I wanted to make biodegradable bullets that we could vaccinate wildlife at long ranges from. So yeah, super hard science hmm. stuff um, and enjoyed it to a degree, but essentially where things turned for me is when I started teaching. And I started teaching um, while I was a graduate student and I really started to recognize that with all the science we can do in the field, None of it matters a darn if people don't relate to it and it can't be turned into policy that people not only understand, but can get behind. So that's kind of where I pivoted to the Wildlife Management Institute, which um, you can look us up online. It's really boring to look at because we make a point to not flash much on magazines or patches. We've been around for almost 110 years. Most folks haven't heard of us, but essentially, WMI is, I like to think, a, a think tank of natural resource professionals whose job is to look a few years ahead down the road, find the problems facing conservation that nobody else can solve because they're too tied politically or they just don't have the current inertia, 
find the solutions to those problems, and then pass them off to all hmm. of the NGOs, the state fish and wildlife agencies who can carry that work forward. And that's kind of what has happened with this thing with R3. Um, there's a lot of things I do with the Institute. Obviously, my title is Director of Special Programs, weirdest title in the, title in the world means they haven't figured out what to call me and, and I haven't figured out what I want to do. <laughs> but basically, I have the freedom to kind of sniff around the conservation world and find the things that interest me. And coming from a natural resource background, being a lifelong hunter myself, and most of all of my sisters, my mother are as well, um, looking into this issue of declining hunting and shooting sports and even angling participation was something that really came natural to me to, to start exploring. And when I started it, um, I found that uh, almost nobody was looking into it in the way that I think is was needed or helpful, but that was a decade ago. So um, in brief, that's that's kind of uh, where I came from and why I'm here. And, and yeah, you want to talk about our three, man, we can be on here for five hours. So ask away. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so that is one of my questions about the origination of this quote unquote problem, right? That yeah. what, what's led to our three, like, if you boil it down, if I my previous career was in baseball. So I, I come up with baseball analogies a lot. And there's a debate between Alexander Cartwright or Abner Doubleday, who really created baseball, right? Yeah. It, who's the, um, the founding architect of the concern around the loss of hunters? It sounds like you had a role in that, um, and, but undoubtedly there are probably others. But where did this, where did this concern originate? Yeah, well, I, I describe my role as much more of a thief than an originator. I stole a bunch of really good ideas um, that had been honestly kicked around since the 50s and simply packaged them in a way, I think, that um, was more palatable. Plus, I think there's a mixture of right place at the right time. So um, real briefly, uh, there's research going back to the 1950s where folks like Bruce Matthews and others were raising the alarm, so to speak, and, you know, buried deep within wildlife management technical journals saying, hey, we see some trends in hunters that if this plays out over the next 40, 50 years, y'all are going to be in a world of hurt. And lo and behold, in around 2007, which was when I really entered the game, all of those predictions were coming true, but Ooh. we had a real problem as a community. Nobody wanted to see that. And really where I got involved was um, after there were two or three work, what were called at the time governor's symposia in Washington, D.C., where um, leadership within state governments were looking at a graph that had come out showing the precipitous decline of hunting since the 80s. And essentially, the conversation was just this. Guys were looking across the table at each other going, have you seen this? Is this real? Why is this happening? Can we believe these numbers? And one of the problems at the time was that state fish and wildlife agencies weren't tracking their data to refute or confirm it. So the federal, so large scale census data was showing this. But when governors turn to agencies, the agency says, well, we're not sure. Maybe it seems like it, but maybe, maybe not. So that's kind of the world, the, the state of uncertainty that I came in on in around, uh, like I said, I think it was around 2006 that ultimately led to looking at if I can say this succinctly, looking at 
a couple things. Number one is, what were we as a community? And by community, I mean NGOs, state fish and wildlife agencies, and you know stakeholders that are concerned about hunters. What were we doing that you know could be combating this trend? That was one thing. Second thing was, how bad was this trend? Was it even real? Um, and then the third thing was, if we know those first two things, was there anything we could do about it? Hmm. And so that those three questions are what launched essentially what has been at least a third of my career in trying to answer and um, it kind of le it's leading us to what this conversation is today and and ultimately what has resulted in this thing we call the R3 movement why we have one more dadgum acronym that we have to negotiate <laughs> in our field. <laughs> well, it's consistent with my previous career in baseball. There was a lot of acronyms there, RBIs, ERA, and you add yeah. sabermetrics to it, and now there's a whole bunch of others. So um, I think we're all used to acronyms to some extent, but I, they, I do think acronyms get in the way of understanding. Um, so, But we don't have to go down the acronym road. Well, uh, no, we don't. It's but... a pet peeve. Well, yeah, but but in this case, I think this this is interesting. So I'm just going to take a thread um, that that you said was okay to take in the beginning, and and you or Colby tell me to get off this train if I need to. But you know, why do we have an acronym? That that acronym is really the heart of kind of that third question that I listed. What can we do about this? Mm -hmm. And. I'll give you the Reader's Digest version of what myself and about 30 other people from state fish and wildlife agencies and conservation NGOs found when we started to scratch the surface. Number one is that the decline was real. Um, not only were we losing numbers, so, you know, 1980s were running around 16 million hunters. Um, by the time the 2000, you know, the aughts came around, we were around 14 I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm not sure if I said thousand, 16 million hunters in the 80s. There were around 14 million in the early 2000s, and now we're down to about 11 million. So first off, the trend is real, but also remember this, it's not just the number loss, it's the proportion of the U.S. population. So during that same time, the population of the U.S. was exploding. We gained like 80 million people during that time. So what we found is not only we're we losing numbers, we're losing a proportion of what the United States is. We also found that most hunters are one type. And as I look at the screen here, I see three middle-aged white guys. This is who hunting is. We're 90% Caucasian. Or excuse me, we're 97% uh, Caucasian. We're 90% male. And we're mostly over the age of 40. That does not look much like the United States. So we found that. So then we realized, well, wait a minute, is nobody doing anything? And we knew that wasn't true. I mean, Colby, you can, uh, you, 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 at the beginning of this, you talked about a lot of the things that Pheasants Forever is doing. Those efforts were ubiquitous and had been for years. So why weren't they working? We did a, we did several national censuses and we found hundreds, no, tens of thousands of R3 programs. Um, just to give you one of the more recent pieces of data, we found in the angling world that state fish and wildlife agencies alone um, usually do around 22,000 angling R3 programs a year. And mm. if you look on the hunting and shooting sports side, you're going to find something very similar. So what the heck was happening? Numbers were going down. We're pumping out all this effort, but why aren't, why aren't we getting anywhere? So this is where R3 comes in. So I'll, I'll wrap this up nicely in a bow here. To summarize what we found is that we, those of us who are doing recruitment, retention, reactivation programs, 
we weren't trying to make more hunters. I know it's going to tick some people off, but it's true. We were not trying to make more hunters. Our programs, whether by intention or not, were trying to make clones of us. Hmm. So, for example, when an agency does a, let's say, a youth pheasant weekend, they usually one person, a middle-aged white guy, talks to another middle-aged white guy and says, hey, what do you think we should do? Those two guys make a program that their 12-year-old selves would have totally geeked out on. <laughs> and everything about the program, from the way they teach safety, the way that it's instructed, the, the steps that it goes through, was geared toward them. Mm-hmm. Then, when they advertise it, they advertise it first come, first serve. And where do they advertise it? State Fish and Wildlife Agency websites or NGO websites. Well, who's going to those websites first? Existing hunters. So what happened is we made all these programs for our kids. And we did a really good job at getting our kids involved. But the problem was America was moving on. Less and less people were starting hunting because they looked at what we were providing and said, oh, that does not look or sound like me. Clearly, hunting is not a thing that I do. The other thing that we recognized is that almost all these efforts, in addition to being tailored to just us and our kids, they were only hitting one, they were only addressing, let's say, one part of the pathway somebody needs to follow before they adopt a new idea. Okay, so think about, for like all the all the listeners out there, think about an activity that you picked up as a kid, or even as an adult, a hobby. I want you to think about the process you went through. I want you to remember, how did you hear about it? How many times did you try? How many bloody YouTube videos did you watch? How many things did you Google? How long did it take for you to get to a point of thinking, I think I might try this to oh, this is totally something I'm going to do, right? That often takes weeks, months, years even. If it's something like hunting where we have seasons, it often takes multiple years. Okay, I promise I made this short. I'm already lying. But this is really important because this is the the heart of of our three. Um, So not only were these programs tailored just to us, but that long process that it takes for an actual new individual who doesn't come from a hunting family, the process it takes that individual to complete before they become independent, our programs are only touching one little step in most of those. And you can all think of examples of this. We take somebody in the field, we teach them how to use a shotgun, they bust a few clays, we take them hunting the next day, and then we say, okay, now go ahead and change your life and everything you've ever thought about hunting. And all your friends and family, by the way, you got to win them over, but do that all by yourself. We've done our job. Mm -hmm. So our three came in because at that time, Our community said recruitment retention like it was one word. All of the research, all of our programs were called recruitment retention programs. Well, myself and my colleagues recognized, wait, that's only two of the three sort of mega steps. You have to be recruited. You then have to be retained. You then have to be reactivated because guess what? Life happens, particularly if you don't come from a hunting family that's going to make you take time off in the fall and go hunting. You're going to go to college. You're going to get a new job. You may have a kid. Life gets in the way. So you need this support structure. The concept behind our three is that we as a community have to remember the steps to recruit, to retain, reactivate people have to be there all sequentially and all readily accessible if we actually want to make more Americans who currently aren't hunters, hunters. All those were perfect intentions right? Like the, the yeah. quote unquote cloning was all done with good intentions. 
it just happened to be, like you say, mis a bit misguided because uh, the country was evolving at the same time. I, I think it's important to circle back for a moment and explain why is this a big deal? You know, hunter, we're losing hunters. The natural, one of the natural questions is, so what? Because the, the hunters that are out there get the, you know, they're like, well, my public space, my little public honey hole, it's a good thing that it's not so crowded, um, which may be true for that individual, but it's short-sighted for the big picture. So, so answer the question for us, why does it matter that we're losing hunters? Uh, that's a great question. And as someone who's a public land Western hunter, believe me, the one more truck in the parking lot paradigm is something that I would prefer to avoid as well. So it's a real question. And, you know, I think there's, we, we as, as conservation professionals or even just passionate hunters, we're a pretty educated group. And we often, I think, are a little bit disingenuous in how we answer this question. And we tout high morals and high standards and say, oh, hunters are the greatest conservationists and all that. And, and I think that's somewhat disingenuous. Um, I, I like to challenge people back and say, hey, if that's true, if hunting licenses were optional, would you still buy one? <laughs> if you can answer yes, then okay, I'll count you as a conservationist. But other than that, you're out there to do your own thing, man. You're out there because we know from research as well as just talking to each other, we hunt for reasons that are super personal, time with our family, mental health in the outdoors, providing meat for our loved ones, all of these type things. So to answer that question, let's break two things apart. There's an egghead way to answer this. There's a structural conservation way to answer this. And then there's a personal way to answer this. So as someone who um, is, is a professional in wildlife biology, I'll answer the technical side. And, it, and it's actually fairly simple. There's two main reasons why it's really critical that we always have a healthy, robust population of hunters. Number one is, whether good, bad, or otherwise, funding for conservation lies largely in the hands of those who purchase license dollars. Um, now, the tenets of conservation, maybe some folks have heard the North American model of conservation. If you ever Google those and look at them, you know, there's one thing that's really missing. We tout these as the greatest thing that makes America different or North America from any other country. And, and it is. There are seven tenets, but none of them talk about funding themselves. They just talk about we did and will do these things and have done these things, but there was no tenant of funding. So what happened is the funding model for nearly all conservation was put on the backs of hunters, shooting sports participants, trappers, boaters, and anglers. Now that made sense when almost everybody in America was doing at least one of those things. What we failed to do, and I'm going to point my own my finger at my own chest on this one, we as conservation professionals failed to realize that that was unsustainable as people became urbanized and not everybody was doing that thing. So right now, you know, we've got less less than 20% of Americans that are paying into that conservation pot and 80% of Americans freeloading on the conservation benefits of it. So it's it's actually really unfair, in my opinion, and it's ill-advised, but that's why we need those dollars. If those dollars go away, the, our current model of conservation absolutely crumbles. So that's one thing. The second thing that's, that's sort of technical is that 
we rely on harvest numbers. We rely on hunters harvesting critters to gather really critical data that keep wildlife populations healthy. Whether we're looking at chronic wasting disease, where we have to have deer and elk hunters that turn in their heads so we can sample, or we're talking about monitoring waterfowl or uh, bird populations using banding. If we didn't have hunting as a tool to do that, our ability to manage healthy populations would be massively undermined. Okay, so those are the two technical reasons. Now, the, the other side, I think each of us could answer this uniquely and very well, but probably differently. The reason I think it's a big deal is that regardless of how far you look down or the, 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 the chain of human history, however long that is, the, all but the last essentially two seconds of it, hunting has been a human thing. Only the last 50 years or so have we made it a middle-aged white guy thing. That's weird to me. And that's a little bit dangerous. Our species relies on the consumption of other species to survive. And as we know from research that tells us how healthy nature is for all of us, we critically need to spend time outside doing that stuff. So for me personally, I think it's important because this needs to be a part of who America is in my mm -hmm. Uh, in my belief for our health and the future of our country. Why I think R3 is the way to do it is because I want hunting to not just be something that guys like you and I do. I want it to look like America. I want it to look like all Americans, because if we can do that, more Americans will accept, oh, this is just a thing that some humans do, not just this is a thing that middle-aged white guys do. Hmm. So that's the way I'd answer that. And when you think about... 50 years ago, not that, uh, not that you were uh, around and cognizant at that point. Oh, you're so kind. <laughs> but what changed culturally where it became, you know, middle-aged white guys uh, being the, the, the quote-unquote hunting community? What, what changed from different ethnicities and, and genders? Um, and so that's part A, what changed? And then the natural part B of that is how do we bring all of that diversity back into the hunting community? Yeah, um, that's a, there's a lot of reasons. I think we can encapsulate them though. Um, one of the things, well, there's several ways one can predict hunting participation by looking at other factors. Some of those things are income, uh, urbanization, uh, distance to huntable lands, um, a, a, a di different activities, different time priorities. So if you look at the last 50 years, you can see a lot of those things in play. We've been coming more urbanized and more of our population growth has been in urban centers. These aren't really cultural hubs of hunting. They're, mm -hmm. Urban centers are very different culturally, regardless of the ethnic makeup of them. They're just an urban landscape is a very different type of landscape. When you think about how our work has changed in a very affluent country, there's a lot of office work. There's a lot of at-home work. Um, there's a lot of, therefore, technological devices that we rely on in our lives, all of which take up time and priority. So you can start to look at some factors like that and see that this thing called hunting, which essentially, even though um, those of us that are, are bow hunters like myself know that uh, uh, technology is very... Uh, is a huge help uh, in, in our sport. Inherently, 
or I shouldn't say sport in our activity, but inherently technology, quick fixes, convenience have nothing to do with hunting. <laughs> I mean, we're, mm -hmm. as Colby said, why would somebody spend all this time and money to get up early and freeze themselves to death for a chance at something they're probably not going to hit. And then once they do, they won't know what to do with it after that. Mm -hmm. So all of those elements, all of the skills and psychology that makes hunting fit within a social group, those things became somewhat obsolete and outdated. Hmm. So that was happening. But the crux of your question is, is why did we let it happen? So hmm. for those of our communities like myself, so the cultural group that I come from, very rural, very uh, ran ranch or agriculture based, <clears throat> we as a culture still retained a lot of those skills. What we failed to do was recognize that we had to start with somebody who didn't have those skills and we had to with humility go to that person that honestly we probably looked down on because they were city folk and be patient enough to say listen we i need to make you a hunter you need to walk this mile that i'm walking and i'm willing to um, show you how to do it in a way that works for you rather than for me let, let me let me say that a different way what we failed to do was realize that the way rural america looked at hunting was only one of a suite of potential options that a human might look at hunting. So I can think of an example where I take a 21-year-old urban female, ex-vegetarian, by the way, and teach her how to hunt, the way she hunts, what she needs to learn, the process she follows are all so different from mine, as well as aspects like she hates taking pictures of dead animals. She thinks it's um, uh, irreverent. She does not like to spend weeks at a time in the backcountry. Um, she's much smaller than me. She has very different criteria of where to choose. You, you can you can hear where I'm going with this. Her mm -hmm. experience in hunting and her values and what makes it important to her are really different than mine. And so what we didn't do is we didn't tell America that was changing, hey, you know, hunting can be done in a ton of different ways and they're all valid. You can be a, a, a tattooed, urban, skinny, jean wearing hipster. And you and I have a ton in common because we're going to hunt together. And the way you hunt is fine. Go, circling back to what I was saying early on with our programs and the way we were doing our three, we weren't telling these people it's okay to be you and hunt. What we were saying is if you want to become a hunter, you need to talk like me, use my acronyms, wear the camouflage and follow the steps that I do. And they looked at that and they mm. said, whoa, why are you trying to change who I am, man? I just want to go hunting. And we said, no, no, no. To be a hunter, you got to be like me. The words weren't said specifically, but the <clears throat> actions were implied constantly. I, you know, I, I, you, another way I think about it, <clears throat> and you started to use the word and you changed it, um, you, you referenced hunting as a sport. And then you, yeah. you quickly self-edited yourself hunting Pivot. as an act as an activity, and 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 I I think you're probably aligned with me on this. I I think the world, like much like you talked about, urban settings started to look at hunting as a sport, um, win or lose, and that's when kind of culturally it sort of changed and it's a, it's a pet peeve. Another pet peeve of mine is that it's referenced as a sport and rather than activity, I, I always think of hunting as a lifestyle, which I think aligns pretty well with you 
and how you talk about the skinny jeans wearing hipster, their experience in hunting is a different lifestyle choice and how they, you know, it's, they can fold it into their view of the world, their lifestyle, different from a rancher, a backcountry hunter, a bird hunter that, you know, has a bird dog and their entire world revolves around another animal that's part of their life. You know, so I, I think that there's some parallels there to what changed 50 years ago to how hunting was perceived. You know, that once upon a time, hunting was a commonplace in publications like Sports Illustrated. Um, and it, because it was a quote unquote sport. And that has, on one level, that was okay in terms of making hunting approachable from pop culture, but it also changed the complexion of how people perceived it. Does that resonate with you? Well, it does. And, and, and I'm glad you keyed in on that because that, that's, I think, even maybe a better way to even frame this or it just a different way to frame this change. When you and I use the word sport, you and I know because of the, the unspoken cultural norms of the, the hunting uh, lifestyle, we know that we're not talking about that we're going to go out and whack an animal and enjoy it because we're right. whacking an animal the way we'd whack a baseball. When we say sport, what we're thinking about is the year of preparation, the sighting in, the getting in shape, the early morning spent with friends, the hilarious stories we're going to come back with. We use the word sport because that aligned with our culture. What we failed to recognize was that to the rest of the world who were interested in hunting, they heard the word sport and they heard something very, very differently. And we've documented this in research. Same thing with the word trophy. You and I know what we mean and we say it with reverence and respect, but others don't see it that way. And what we fail, where, where I think we failed is we didn't quickly enough update our language. We hmm. didn't we didn't take the time to think about somebody else's values and realize it was a simple fix. I mean, we're talking about some simple things. If I would just um, happily say, um, or if we would, we would just switch the way I did from sport to an activity, to lifestyle, to just outdoor pursuit, that could have opened up the doors for so many people. So our failing was in not recognizing the value changes that were occurring and the language that was being used and, and we didn't allow hunting to be translated because I think in some ways we felt very defensive. Hey, this is my sport. This is important to me. This is These are my trophies. This is my stuff. Why are you trying to take my stuff? We looked at it that way rather than saying, oh, th this is just a translation issue. You feel the same way. A, a story I like to tell a lot was about that the, the example of that young lady I was just referring to. You know, After she harvested her first deer, the first thing she wanted to do was save some of that deer for her upcoming wedding so that she could show all of her non-meat-eating friends and family how important this was. Hmm. That's crazy. That's incredibly meaningful. But if I would have kept using that language and pushing her down a pathway that I learned, she never would have started. So that's where we need to change as individuals and where we need to change as a culture. And there's a lot of that within the R3 movement. And I know Colby is familiar with this because we talk about this a lot. So not only did we talk about the different languages that 
we need a change in, in what we've said over the years, but also the imagery that we've shown as hunters. Uh, we have not done a good job of telling the complete story. We talked about Matt, the entire year of preparation, uh, the aspect of the wild game cooking, um, everything that goes into the hunt itself in the past, we always just showed the imagery of a hunter standing behind it with a big grin on their face. You know, that traditional Griffin grin type of imagery. And that's what the non-traditional people have always seen. Today, we're lucky yeah. enough that we've been able to kind of rebrand hunters in a sense with, with Instagram and the different platforms that are out there is you do see people telling that whole side of the story. And that in and of itself is a, a huge step forward, um, in my opinion, of us being able to show the entire thing, the sunrises, the sunsets, the beauty, the nature. Uh, that's a part of the story. And we haven't told that in the past. You know, you're, you're so right. And it makes me think of... Um, some focus groups that were done, gosh, it's probably been 15 years or, or ago or so, um, of it was women, Black Americans, and Hispanic uh, populations. And the focus groups asked them, you know, those that weren't participating, why didn't you participate? And the thing that you're talking about right there was what came up time after time. I don't see pictures that look like me. I don't see regulations tailored to me. And it was summed up by um, one, and I forget who, who it specifically was, but she said, you don't buy stuff that doesn't look like you. And that was really a wake up moment for a lot of us in the research community. We said, yeah, duh, marketers have known this forever. You look at the magazines and we're not even representing America. We keep showing this one segment because, well, this one segment is really, really avid. They spend a bunch of money. If you look at the average amount that hunters spend, um, it's, it's, it's very significant. It's very easy to just market to that group and not even branch out because they are just so robust. But anybody who's taken a, a, a marginalized ethnicity into the woods and taken them hunting will really quickly see through their eyes that this activity, coming back to something I said in the beginning, that should be a human thing, really doesn't look that way to them. And even if they want to get out there, they wonder why. Why doesn't this look like me? I mean, Black Americans, um, Hispanic Americans, all the other and, and ethnicities that migrated here and immigrated here, if you go back early in the history of them living off the land, these folks have been out there doing it a long time. But again, we weren't willing to let trans hunting be translated into all these new values and voices. And so like you're saying, Colby, we don't see the images, or at least not until recently, we don't hear their, their voices. We don't hear that dialogue much. And yet, how are you going to sell something to somebody new if it looks nothing or sounds nothing like them? You know, there's, there's a popular reference to the five stages of hunters. You probably heard the, the you know, shooting stage, limiting out stage, trophy stage. Met, then people evolve into method stage and then sportsman stage. Do other ethnicities go through those same stages or is that theory about the five stages of hunting actually become a detriment to is that just another sort of cloning mechanism of the middle-aged white guy <laughs> oh man you, you got a real talent for stepping on raw nerves there bob nicely done um <laughs> i hate those five stages so much <laughs> so okay so you're gonna get a lot of my opinion here so i and and, and I'll, I'll, I'll i can speak too harshly about it so let me be honest here those let's call them stages for now 
those stages exist, of course. Um, a lot of us can relate to them. However, they are not linear and they don't describe everybody's experience holistically. So they are potential places a hunter can be in any given day, not year or, you know, in, in, in year one through three and then year three through seven and seven through 10. It doesn't work like that. I can be, I can switch from limiting out stage. I, man, if I'm going through, if I'm going after perch through the ice, I am totally in limiting out stage. But, <laughs> you know, or if it's, if it's open or pheasant season, man, I want my bag full because it's been a long year since I've eaten fresh pheasant. But the very next day, I can switch into sportsman stage and take somebody else out. So mm -hmm. I think they're really poor at describing this human mm -hmm. condition we've been talking about. And as such, yeah, I believe that's been a detriment to other communities. And here's why. If you look at some of the research out there on different ethnicities, what you will find is while they share the same or all, ethnic, all ethnicities share very similar values for why they want to hunt, the priorities of those values are different. For instance, yeah. um, if you look at Hispanic or Latino populations, a focus on time with family is rated higher than with like Caucasians. Caucasians tend to like the solo experience, you know, think of like solo hunter mm -hmm. TV shows and all that. Well, with other populations, they're more like, no, I wouldn't do that without my family. What my family thinks and feels and what they want to do is more important. So what we, what we failed to recognize is that as those values are prioritized difference across groups, looking at like the five stages could be really disorienting or just really meaningless. Mm -hmm. And just one more way someone says, that doesn't sound anything like me. I'm, I, I don't think this was meant for me. This must be meant for somebody else. You talk about what's the highest priorities from, you know, Hispanic community, time with family. That's even trying to make some of those uh, modeling predictions are probably a challenge as you go down different ethnicities, isn't it? Well, it, it's really not that difficult at all because all you have to do is just ask them. So uh, this is where focus mm. groups come in. I mean, this is the way big industry. So let's let's take a playbook out of like the rest of America. So the way businesses work, the way businesses convince people to do things, the way they get people to adopt new activities or new products is they take small samples of all their potential customers and get them in a room and say, hey, what do you guys think about this? Now, that is one thing that we as a community really haven't done much. We have expected that, hey, if you want to hunt, you have to come to us rather than it from mm -hmm. the, the, the business perspective of, no, what do you need? And if you're talking about something like an NGO, like Pheasants Forever, or like a state fish and wildlife agencies, if your mission is to increase hunting participation, I'll point my finger right at your chest and say, you need to be out there doing the seeking. You need to be putting the focus groups together and asking, what are your barriers? What's more important mm. to you? How can, so let's say, I'll get real personal here, so forgive me, Colby. How can Pheasants Forever work for you? What do we need to do differently to make um, our uh, Black American members more comfortable? What do you all need? Mm -hmm. um, have we done that? Have we asked those questions? In large part, no, we haven't. But fortunately, researchers have. And we, we've learned a lot about those things that could be applied today. Um, for instance, mm. if we're looking at like Hispanic populations in Texas, one of the big things that pops up is fear of breaking the law because the regulations may or may not be in Spanish. How simple is that to fix? 
And, 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 and now to their credit, they have fixed that. But these are things that a lot of us wouldn't have thought about that are massive barriers to more Americans getting involved that, again, in my opinion, that impetus needs to be on us. We're the ones that have, frankly, this is, you know, like me, this has been easy. I was born into this. I had all the support structure around me. My dad knew how to um, shoot. I had all the firearms available there, lived in the National Forest. This is easy for me. For somebody who was raised in urban, let's say Detroit, that has nobody that's been in their family that has been hunting, but hey, they watched a, I don't know, an episode or they heard about pheasants forever, what, saw something and went, man, that really looks interesting. How do I get involved with them? Have we asked that person what their path looks like? And do we have a pathway for them in our organization? That is where our three boots on the ground has to happen. And I think it happens at two levels. One is you and I need to have a change of heart to be willing to ask those questions and allow hunting to be translated to new folks. And then the second level is as an organization, we need to make those priorities to reach out and ask them, how can this organization help you along your path? So you took me right to the transition I wanted to go. We, we've spent a lot of time talking about sort of that leading up to the, um, the problems that have developed um, over time that led to the R3 movement. And I wanted to transition towards how do we change things? And you started talking about um, ways that we can change it. Part of it is having honest conversations with ourselves and the audiences we want to recruit whether that's focus groups, one-on-one, -on -one, or organization to agency. Um, but tell me about some of the other ways, big picture, that the, the community can make a move here to not only stem the loss of hunters, but start to truly replace them and gain, gain ground. Yeah. Well... I actually think it's simple. I've, I've thought a lot about this. So let's uh, let's let's make let's talk at the right scale here. So as you guys have probably picked up, I can be really annoying in these conversations because I like definitions, but I think it's important so we don't talk past each other. What can you and I do? Let's start at the granular level. And everybody who's listening to this, if you're a hunter, this is what I would ask you to do. You have to replace yourself and the hunting population at least one time with somebody who doesn't look like you. That's it. It's as simple as that. Your job is to, before you hang up your gun, before you hang up your bow, your job is to find someone who does not look like you, does not come from your cultural background, and who wouldn't otherwise go hunting, and make sure they become a hunter, whether it takes six months or six years. Hmm. This, is, this, is, this is why I think this will work. This is, follow the math with me. If just 30% of existing hunters, that 11 million hunters that we know are active right now, and there's there's probably more that have hunted, but at least the active hunters, if just 30% of them did that in a year or two, we would be back up to pre-1980 levels. It's really that simple. What you can't be satisfied with doing is just taking out your kids, somebody else in your family, or a close friend. That's important. Keep doing that. But that's not enough. I need mm -hmm. you to, we need you to do one thing more. Find someone who doesn't look like you and allow them to guide you down the pathway they need to take. And coming from experience, I mean, let me be realistic here. This isn't easy. This isn't an easy ask, even though it's easy to say. I have 
mentees that, gosh, I think I'm eight years in on that still mm. need to call me before every season, before every draw application deadline and say, Matt, I forgot. How do you do this? Because the rest of the year, they're not embedded in a hunting culture. They're trying to make a brand new one. You know how hard it is to invent a new culture? That's what we're asking them to do. Others I've taken out once and they're good to go. And they're taking out people the very next time. So strap in for this one, but that's our job. Now, if we all did that, we'd reach that. So let's scale up to the next level. If that's the ethos, then let's look like an, an organizational level like Pheasants Forever or um, a Safe Fish and Wildlife Agency. If they essentially follow that same model, how can we engage and serve all of the people that might want to become hunters and do some of the things like I was saying, do the focus groups, find the constituents in, the, in your state or within the realm of your organization. Ask, what can we do? Do it like... Um, uh, the uh, uh, Georgia Wildlife Federation and Quality QDMA did down in Georgia, go to a farmer's market, have a stand where you give out samples of pheasant and just start conversations with people and say, hey, we want to learn more about you. What do you need? Have you heard about our organization? Here's sustainable, organic, you know, <laughs> free range, about as free range as you can get food. So following that same ethos, replacing ourselves with someone who doesn't look like us. And now, let me wrap this up with why that I think that's the way to go. Because if we did that, we'd achieve two things. Number one is we'd achieve sheer numbers. We'd get back up to number levels that are more significant when it comes to policy, politicians, mm -hmm. legislatures. That becomes a more significant voice for the for hunting itself. But to me, the more exciting thing is that not only do we get more numbers, but who do those numbers look like? So the example I like to give a lot is uh, a 19-year-old um, a female from Puerto Rico who I took out on her first deer hunt. She was a barista at Starbucks. And I like to pose the example. Can you imagine me going up to her in Starbucks and saying, hey, would you like to come hunting with me? You can imagine how well that would go over. Um, fortunately, she took a hunter education class um, and reached out to me in other ways that don't matter right now. But here's, here's the kicker. Within two weeks of her harvesting that first deer, she had taken out three more of her female Starbucks baristas squirrel hunting. Hmm. So if we replace ourselves with someone who doesn't look like us, we make advocates for the entire section of America that we've missed. And they bring in their community. And we don't have to do all that work, and it'd be inappropriate for us to do anyhow. And we make that way we make hunting look more like America. And we are essentially showing these individuals that mentorship and taking somebody out is part of the deal. Now you go and do it. Absolutely. And one thing that I would say though, too, along with that, Matt, is some of those are gonna be a little bit trickier in when you're trying to do that. You may have to play that longer game when you're working to replace yourself with someone who's not within your inner circles and just make sure that you don't overstep within your in, inner circle. And what I mean by that is a personal example that I, I was so entrenched in looking for others who didn't look like me and working on a national scale and working on our programs as an organization. And I was sitting down at the Thanksgiving table and my cousin's husband, as I was explaining what my position was and what we do and what R3 is, looked me straight in the eyes and said, but you've never asked me. So <laughs> is, is, 
don't, you know, as we're looking outside of our circles, don't forget that there's people too right there, you know, that are easy ones that you can transition a lot quicker than some of those where we have to put a lot more sacrifice, a lot more time, a lot more effort into it. Um, you have those inner circles, um, make sure you start there with the easy ones as you're doing the long-term stuff too. Um, I, I just couldn't believe that I had somebody sitting at the Thanksgiving table with me and he'd never hunted before in his entire life, uh, 35 years old, you know, right there, ripe, ready to go, uh, but nobody ever asked him. And the Pheasants Forever National Hunting Heritage Program Manager sitting across the table from him. Mm. <laughs> Well, I mean, you're you're spot on, and you know, I recently did completed some research about mentor and mentoring, and and what we found when we did some focus groups of folks um, asking them about, hey, would you be interested in somebody taking you out hunting and so forth? We heard actually a lot of what you're saying in that I have this, you know, uncle or friend or whatever that goes hunting, but they've never asked me. And so I've assumed that they don't want to take me. So I'd really like to find a mentor. And we're sitting there going, oh my gosh, we're researching mentoring <laughs> programs and it's right there in front of them. So I, I think if we just, I mean, what's so important about conversations like this and to everybody that's listening is if we change our mindset and we realize this is our job, that when we started hunting, we were given the secret but implicit gift that in order for us to do this, we have to give it to somebody else. If we look at the world that way, I'm hoping that we'll find more opportunities right under our nose like that, that would be way easier to do. You're right. I mean, they're in the family. They've got all the social support mm -hmm. they need, but we still have to be looking. And the, the other thing I'll tie onto this is I, I mentioned before the one truck in the parking lot paradigm. We as hunters are just selfish sons of guns. I am, I know I am, I'm incredibly jealous of my fall time. I only take people out during the worst seasons. So <laughs> I have never, I have never taken somebody deer hunting during the rut and I don't plan to, <laughs> that's my time. Um, we have to recognize that inherently we wanna save this for ourselves, but we have to recognize that if we do that, we're gonna pinch ourselves out of existence and we'll save it so much that eventually we become so politically socially and culturally irrelevant, that it'll be very easy for others who simply don't understand to find ways to reduce our access, reduce the opportunities, and ultimately reduce the privilege of doing so. Yeah, you tease about uh, not mentoring somebody in the rut, but you've no less than uh, used probably seven examples of people you've mentored. I'm curious, how many people have you mentored in hunting in your lifetime. Uh, it, it's got, it seems like it's been dozens. <laughs> it, it probably has. Um, I made a commitment when I became a hunter education instructor. Oh golly, this would be 18 years ago or so. Um, I made a commitment to mentor at least one person that made me uncomfortable once a year. And so in those days, I didn't, I didn't say, you know, mentor somebody who doesn't look like yours look like you. It was somebody who makes me really uncomfortable, um, which naturally led to some really interesting pairings and caused me to learn a lot. So I have done that at least once every year. Um, but there are some years like last year where I ended up taking out six, four of them were in one family. And then they had uh, two cousins that I took out as well. 
And um, one thing I've learned is that you never lose a mentee. So <laughs> again, warning to everybody out there, your circle of friends will grow exponentially. Um, but I, I count it as a blessing personally. But yeah, I, I, I wish it was something we all would do. But I also understand that I'm highly privileged in the lifestyle that I have, that I have a job that allows me to work in these spaces and go to these um, uh, have friends and colleagues that, that are supportive. I have a family and a wife that loves to hunt. Everybody in my family does. So I have a lot of support so I can do that. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for everybody, but just do it at least once. Find that person that is uncomfortable to you. Um, take them out. Now, one thing I probably should say is how do you find somebody like that? Um, referencing that same research where we talk to potential mentors and mentees, one of the number one things that um, existing hunters are concerned about is how do I find somebody that isn't like me and how can I trust them? So I think there's a real role for a group like Pheasants Forever or a state fish and wildlife agency to be kind of like an insurance broker. It's maybe not the greatest analogy, but it's the only one my limited brain can think of right now. There needs to be this intermediary, which can kind of hear what the potential mentor can do and wants and can hear what the potential student can do and wants and knows how to link them up. I think that's a, an R3 effort that we need to do better and we need to develop more. It, it's We're making some strides in it. And Colby, I should actually kick this to you when I'm done to talk about what you all are doing. But that brokerage, I think, is going to be really important to make sure that when we're throwing two strangers together, um, we can facilitate and help one, hunt, one hunter replace themselves with somebody new um, in a way that's going to be successful and won't be a negative experience for either party. But Colby, what I, I know PF is doing some of that stuff. What, what are some of the things you guys are doing on that line? Yeah, and right along with what you just said there, Matt, we actually uh, were working with the Midwest Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies um, on a partnership directly towards that and creating a, a hunter network, if you want to call it a hunter mentor network, kind of that. Um, the easy way to say it is like a, a dating website, you know, pairing those individuals up. So we, we are partnering with state agencies on some of that uh, that's down the road. Um, from Pheasants Forever standpoint, the biggest thing that uh, we're really working on through our initiatives is um, multi-day types of experiences and focus more on adults. We haven't even really gone down that road much in this conversation, um, but you know, the one and done type of events, the multi-day weekend experiences and working on recruiting those individuals through different avenues um, to where the number one soul of those participants maybe comes from an out that's based around food groups, uh, where the food groups is where we're getting the participants, we're pairing them up one-on-one -on -one and we're doing a Friday, Saturday, Sunday type of an experience. Um, and being involved in those weekend long experiences, I can tell you the greatest thing that comes from it is sitting around the campfire that evening, eating a freshly harvested wild game animal and just seeing how much that we have in common with individuals that are new adult hunters and I always like to kick it off myself and talk about, you know, my story and how I'm not a perfect mentor. You know, that's the one thing we talk about mentorship and um, taking somebody new is I think a lot of people are hesitant to take individuals out because they don't consider themselves a, a super mentor, you know, or that they have this great background and training. And I think that's a barrier, too, uh, for individuals that they're scared that they may 
pass the wrong information on to a new individual. Um, but what we've seen is some of the best relationships for a mentor, mentee, whatever terminology you want to call it, is when somebody goes through one of our programs and then they turn around two years later and skip those steps that you talked about, Bob, as a hunter and as a participant now become a mentor themselves and they grow at the same pace as the new participant that they're taking out. Um, I know that helped me a lot as a first generation hunter was meeting some friends in, in a community that they didn't have 40 years of hunting experience. And so we learned along the way together. They taught me, I taught them and you know, you learn from your mistakes. So uh, that, that's a big, big part of it within our programming is, is really those lifelong pairs, if you want to call it through those experiences we're doing. Matt, you've talked about how many mentors, um, mentees you've uh, ushered into hunting. And for folks that are listening are probably largely an audience of, of, people that have a background in, in hunting and they're, they're the potential mentors. What tip would you give for folks that are considering becoming a mentor? I mean, certainly there's a, you know, know what they're getting into from a potential time commitment, but what's, what's a bit of advice that they should know as they take this journey um, to become a mentor? Great question. And I'm reminded of a quote from, I'm not sure if he would want me to say this, so I won't say his name. He is the um, president of a international conservation organization. And he and I were talking about this one night after meeting and, and enjoying a, a frosty adult beverage. <clears throat> and we were, we were kicking that around. Like, what, what do I tell all of my members? Um, if, if I'm going to tell them to go take somebody out, what, what should I do? And and he was sitting there. I remember he was just, he was running the top of his, his beer glass with his finger. And he said, I wish I could just tell him to shut the bleep up. <laughs> and that was his, mm. that was his number one recommendation. Just shut up and listen. And now let me, let me break that down a little bit because that's also what I have learned over doing this, over mentoring people that make me feel uncomfortable is when I started mentoring, I thought what those people needed was a very clearly articulated pathway ahead of them. You know, I could make them feel secure by telling them, listen, we're going to learn all these things. We're going to go through these steps. We're going to make sure all this happens and then everything will work out right. That seemed right to me because I remember that's how my dad taught me. But as it turns out, what I learned is what those people heard was I'm not involved in the process. Well, how I wanted to do it isn't the way you are saying to do it. You're not answering any of the questions that I have. I don't want to do some of those things. I don't care about some of those things. And they were thinking all of that in the back of their mind, but that never came out until later on. And I would step on some unseen value or some unrecognized expectation. And I wish I could, I don't want to tell you how many times I made a mentee cry. It's way too more than way too many than, than I want to admit. So step number one is sit down with them. And I've done this either person to person over a cup of coffee or on a phone call and say, listen, uh, I, I'm happy to take you out. But first, I want to hear why you want to go, what you expect, what your concerns are and what your hopes are. And I'm serious. I have a notepad. Um, sometimes uh, I'll, I'll ask them if I can record the call, but oftentimes that'll make them nervous. So I have a notepad and I write all of those things down. 
So that's step number one. Listen really, really carefully. But then you got to do step two. You have to be willing to give up the things that you think are important, the way that you would do it, even some of the things that you know are bad ideas, but they're, they're vested in. And you have to be willing to walk down the pathway that they are laying out. When when I've had hunters or new hunters who have said, you know, I've, I've been taking them out in, let's say, like a plains country after whitetail. And we have a lot of river bottoms in eastern Colorado. And one of the best ways to hunt whitetails out there is you sit on the edge of the river bottom and wait for them to come up in the evening. I've had students that have said, you know, after we've sat there for 15 minutes, say, nothing's coming. We really need to go walk. And I've told them, well, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Well, I feel that's the right thing to do. I've had to say, okay, and we go and we bust two miles of river bottom that's unhuntable for the next two days. But hmm. it is being willing to let them learn those lessons. And this is particularly important with adults, but let them learn lessons and experience and start building an experiential bank in their mind. Remember again, I can't emphasize this enough. They don't have any traditions. They don't have any heritage. They don't have any culture. One of the things that drives me crazy is when I hear mentors, the, fr the first thing they talk about with mentees is the heritage, the culture, and the tradition of hunting. How bloody boring is that to somebody who's coming into it because they're excited to get their own meat? They'll hmm. get their own culture and tradition later. Shut up about it. Who cares about your thing? Right now, it's about them. So be a part of them building their experience bank. Be the part of them building their cultural bank. So... I guess two steps there in, in summation, or I'll, I'll keep running away with this. Shut up and listen, and then actually <laughs> apply what you hear. Colby, folks that are listening that want to get involved with the the mentor component of, uh, of passing it, you know, R3, um, how do they get involved with Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever to be a mentor? There's a lot of different opportunities there, Bob. Um, it can be through a local individual chapter level. So a lot of our chapters across the country put on uh, different types of learn to hunt events, whether that is a youth mentor hunt or an adult learn to hunt experience, or maybe they're hosting a, uh, a pint night for new, new hunters or a mentor training. So there's a lot of opportunities on the local level. Uh, but then there's also ways that they can get involved um, through state agency programs. Um, or on more of a national level. So uh, one of the things we're talking about here today too is our, our mentor pledge. And with the mentor pledge, that is our call to action as an organization for everybody, just as Matt's been talking about through this entire conversation. That is to replace yourself uh, and take somebody new in the field with you this fall. Um, so that's what every single listener on the call here today can do is make sure that they take somebody new with them, either lapsed or a new hunter. Um, it doesn't matter what species. Um, it could be upland bird hunting this fall. It could be spring turkey hunting uh, next year. But what we're looking for people to do is take somebody new in the outdoors. And the other thing we haven't hit on much is that first step when you take somebody out there doesn't mean they have to be carrying a firearm with them on their first step. Um, you want to talk about one of the greatest ways to get somebody hooked in the outdoors, let them go for a walk with you in the uplands behind your bird dogs. I mean, the thrill that they get just experiencing the outdoors, seeing the prairie, walking on a property that Pheasants Forever helped restore, 
that is something that everybody can relate to. Um, and, and it doesn't have that fear factor with the firearm. So what I would highly encourage everybody to do is uh, log on to our website, um, check out the pledge um, and take somebody new with you, um, invite them, ask those questions and listen, as Matt said, that's, uh, that's my, if my wife was listening to this podcast right now and, and she heard that advice, which was shut up and listen, uh, that, goes <laughs> long, that goes a long way. I want to see so, that on a PF t-shirt, Colby. Come on, we need to brand that. <laughs> so I will uh, um, reinforce that. Go to pheasantsforever.org slash mentor pledge or quailforever.org slash mentor pledge. Obviously, we, we'd love for you to mentor somebody into the uplands bird hunting. But if turkeys, whitetails, muleys, elk, bighorn sheep, Proghorns, squirrel, rabbit, whatever turns your crank. What we're just gonna shut up and listen. Uh, Moneyball question for you, fellas. We're in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, and the spring, I believe, something on the magnitude of um, fishing fishing license sales went up thirty or forty percent state by state. And I believe turkey hunting uh, and spring turkey hunting license sales were, were something pretty similar. Uh, what do you predict for this hunting season this fall? And um, are we going to have a similar license sale um, surge as a result of the pandemic, people wanting to get out and and chase birds and whitetails and muleys and elk and all, all because the pandemic has people hooped up and having a newfound love and respect for the outdoors. Is that uh, too big of a leap or is there something to that theory? Well, I, this isn't even much of a guess. Um, some of the numbers are coming in from state fish and wildlife agencies around the country and this isn't just a phenomenon of fishing and turkey hunting. License applications in draw-only states are up. Um, other forms of hunting licenses, and you know, we're just now in the initial purchase period for a lot of the seasons that are coming on board. They're starting to tick up way more than in the past. So my prediction is, yeah, we're going to see we're going to see just how important the outdoors is to Americans continue in this fall and through the winter. And I really think we have a huge opportunity within the conservation community and just hunters in general to capitalize on that because it, here's what's going to happen. A bunch of people are going to start. They're going to have uh, some kind of an interesting experience and they're going to need some help afterwards. We need to yeah. be there to say, hey, you tried it. We'll happily take you out again. Here's the resources you need. So I think we have a huge opportunity and it's not unique to just fishing or turkey hunting, but we could drop the ball really quickly if we don't give them the next step when life may get back to normal in 2021. Any suggestions on making sure that uh, we we don't miss that step? Is there, a, is there a specific thing that you've thought about that because I think you're right. There's a whole surge of people that are going to be doing something for the first time. Then what? How do we make sure we don't fumble that ball? 
Yeah, the, I'm going to answer that. I want to kick it to Colby because I think this is where partnerships between NGOs and state fish and wildlife agencies can be really critical. And, and not just there, but also with industries, outdoor industries, outdoor trade associations. All of these individuals that are joining for the first time, we have a unique footprint. We've got their email address. We know um, something about them. They'll be taking hunter education courses. This is where, as, as let's say, the R3 community, the R3 army, we need to be cooperating with each other to make sure that at least somebody is reaching out to these people after their first experience and saying, hey, we noticed this was your first time in the database, first time purchasing a license. Would you like to go again? And I think a program like Colby was talking about with Pheasants Forever and the mentoring program is a great way that you could reach out to some of these newbies, getting the data from your state fish and wildlife agency or cooperating with their R3 coordinator, emailing these folks, contacting them um, either by that, by that or social media. That's where most of these folks are found and saying, hey, we're here for you. Let us know if you want to go out again. We're ready for your next steps. Hmm. Colby, would yeah, you agree? I I, I absolutely agree, Matt. And one of the other things is not only the hunting programs, but our chapters can play a role just as that next step and having them become a part of our community, uh, whether that's simply a, attending a banquet or going to a pint night event, obviously with COVID, we uh, are limited on our banquets, but they can become a part of that, that community and share their stories. And we have different chapters that do public land meetups and uh, bird dog days and all those different social events. That's where we can bring them in in those next steps. They had that great first experience, uh, been through a, either a state energy program or one of ours, and now the local chapters can get them involved. So I think we're we're here with arms open and uh, and that's the big focus is how do we retain all those individuals? Matt, you've lived up to, to every aspect of my memory from your talk at Custer State Park. And I mean that in all sincerity, um, you, you are such a wealth of knowledge and you articulate it so clearly and so passionately. And it's, you know, you're, you're a researcher who also walks the walk um the your all your stories about mentoring um it, it's just fascinating it's thoughtful it's inspiring uh thank you so much for spending so much time with us today it, it, it was terrific conversation uh, I, i'll give you the microphone for final thought uh what what do you want people listeners to take away from as your closing comments uh, to this conversation well, first, thanks for the kind words. All, all the, the checks in the mail. Um, as, <laughs> to, as to final thoughts, um, I, I hope I want everybody on this call to realize that you are a national treasure right now, as is evidenced by this COVID um, trend that we're seeing. The outdoors is a vitally important thing for America and Americans. We have a huge opportunity to let people enjoy more of their public resource. And you who have the knowledge of how to hunt, how to enjoy those outdoors, you are what America needs right now. The skills that you have, the knowledge that you have, and the willingness that I know is in your hearts because we found it in research. I know you all are willing to take someone out. I know that most of you already have taken someone out, have taken someone out. You are what we need right now. So be proud of that. Go out, find an organization like PF, find a way to get involved, 
get somebody out there and pass on that human heritage that you hold so that that can look a lot more like America down the road. Well said, well said. Um, I will reiterate Colby's closing remark. Um, folks, please take the mentor pledge at pheasantsforever.org slash mentor pledge or quailforever.org mentor pledge. And Colby, we've got surprises for folks that participate, don't we? Yeah, absolutely awesome. Again, we partnered up with Alps Outdoors and uh, we're actually getting ready to host our winners from next year on a guided hunt in South Dakota. Uh, we're going to also be giving away another guided hunting trip next year for uh, the mentor and the mentee. Plus this year we're going to add a flare in. We got uh, Weatherby on board with some shotguns. We're going to be doing Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever memberships. Alps is giving away year. So uh, by simply doing what Matt said, uh, which we should be doing anyways, why not go on there, sign up for the pledge and uh, get yourself a chance at some really nice incentive prizes. All right, folks. There's 140,000 of you out there listening as Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever members. And there's oh, roughly 3 million bird hunters out there listening. Take Matt's advice. We need you to replicate yourself and take somebody that doesn't look like you out there for the good of our habitat, good of clean water, uh, sustainable wildlife populations, healthy soils, and the great outdoors that we all love and love even a little more in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. Um, it is critically important to the lifestyle that we all cherish as Americans. It's uh, fundamentally part of the fabric of, of our freedom. In great outdoors, um, please take somebody out this um, this hunting season because it's almost here. In many yeah. places, it is here. So, th folks, thanks for listening. Matt, thank you so much for spending all this time. It really, really was a joy to talk with you again. Um, and Colby, thank you for participating and bringing the, the R3 message to the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever audience. Thanks, Bob. It's been a pleasure. All right, folks. I'm Bob St. Pierre. Thank you for listening and saying always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks. <laughs>